When Dorothy develops a crush on a co-worker, the girls can't help but to push her into asking him out. When he finally comes to the house for dinner, he has quite the surprise for Dorothy. After learning his true identity, she may have to make some serious moral decisions. Will Dorothy save her soul from eternal damnation? What else can priests do besides take off all their clothes? Will anyone be held responsible for the rigged bingo game? All of that and more in today's episode, Forgive Me, Father. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just With the sun shining, Sophia, in her favorite pastel checkered dress, is sorting through a box at the kitchen table when a distraught Rose comes in in her white-collared shirt, gray cardigan, and jeans. Sophia, being the first to encounter Rose, is the lucky recipient of her story. As she was driving home, rocking out to her yodeling tapes, a man started honking at her. Not wanting to start anything, she just let him pass, but her kindness was only met with rude gestures and obscene language that was so bad it would have made Joan Rivers blush. Then he just sped off. Joan Rivers was the queen of comedy. She was one of the first female stand-ups, and in talking about being a wife, mother, and woman in ways that were not traditional, she paved the way for other obscene comics. And you know who I feel sorry for? Not the men. It's these poor wives, these poor, dry, old wives, and these guys on top of them, in and out, in and out, in and out. They're going to set them on fire. Too bad it was Sophia Rose told her tale to, as she does not give a damn about that story. She's got her own problems, like the whereabouts of her lucky handkerchief, which is apparently what she's been looking for while rummaging through that box. When Rose repeats with lucky handkerchief, Sophia asks, what are you, a mina bird? Which is a type of starling native to South Asia. The common hill mina are the ones best known for mimicking. Here's some nightmare fuel of Kaleo, the mina on YouTube channel CMH Hawaii, talking to its owner. I love you, my little duck. <laughs> what does a chicken say? <laughs> Ah, now we know what that box is. It's her good luck bingo kit. If you've ever played bingo in a hall, you know the hardcore players are the ones with an end-of-table seat, so their lucky daubers, beanie babies, stuffies, and handkerchiefs all have their place, making for ideal bingo winning conditions. For Sophia, the handkerchief will make or break her game. Asking her to play bingo without it would be like asking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to play basketball without goggles. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is considered one of the best basketball players of all time. In his years with the Milwaukee Bucks and L.A. Lakers, there's obviously a lot to say about one of the highest scorers, but when it comes to his goggles, there was a good reason he wore the iconic eyewear. 
1974, he appeared on the court sporting kind of large, almost ski-like goggles. This was due to an eye injury involving a scratch to his cornea that he had endured on the court. He then wore the goggles for the rest of his career, eventually getting sleeker, more court-appropriate goggles. Scoring, see me coming from afar. Kareem Abdul, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This is my lane, let me show you how to ball. When Rose apologizes for not caring about the handkerchief because she's wrapped up in her own feelings of being upset, Sophia asks why she didn't just return the language or gestures. Well, that wouldn't have been proper. Rose would never do such a thing. On the contrary, Sophia finds them to be quite uh, efficient. And with that, she flings her hand under her chin, bites her thumb, and slaps her forearm. All meaning, get lost, F you, and, well, a modified version of what can't be said on television. They do not mean good health, have a nice day, nor is it an offer to play one's concertina, which is an instrument related to the accordion and harmonica. It's a small, handheld accordion-like instrument, only really tiny, and it doesn't have the piano key part of the accordion. Moving on from the gesture lesson, Blanche and Dorothy make their way into the kitchen in the middle of a conversation of their own. Blanche is confused how Dorothy could have spent the afternoon working with a man, Frank, and not end up being asked out on a date. Sophia's not surprised. Heck, if you're looking for the names of anyone who hasn't asked out her daughter, you could just refer to every name in the phone book. For Blanche, she just cannot comprehend how you could spend two weeks with a man and not go on a date, or more. Well, perhaps he isn't into Dorothy. Perhaps he isn't into women. Perhaps he's interested in someone else. Perhaps he wants an old-fashioned romance. There are a lot of reasons, and Blanche, your shock is only going to make matters worse. In her cream-colored, baggy-sleeved, corded sweater with a fringe denim collar peeking out, Dorothy explains to Blanche, in her bright blue collared shirt with matching earrings, it's easy to explain. Sure, I've known of his existence for two weeks, but we've only worked together for two Saturdays, putting together an event for the school. So Blanche gets direct. You would know him better if you just asked him out. Hold on to your butts, because it is Rose who is coming to the rescue with logic. Maybe he's just not that into her. Which also only makes matters worse and makes Dorothy mean, responding to Rose with a, Thanks, you look fat. Continuing to push Dorothy to ask him out, Blanche only has the direct approach to offer. But Rose, again, finds a good compromise. Why don't you just have him over to the house for a casual roommate dinner? Then it's not a date, but you do get time with him and you get to know him better. Still unsure of herself, Dorothy just doesn't think she'll be able to muster the bravery for even that kind of invite. So to ease her concerns, Blanche offers some role-playing. You know she's the best at it. Playing the role of Dorothy, Blanche steps up to Dorothy, a.k.a. Frank's face, and with a drop of the hip, a shimmy of the shoulders, and a breathy, let me find out what whets your appetite. Blanche has shown the world her A-plus flirtation skills. For Dorothy, it's a bit too much. And in a moment of, is she going to kiss her, slap her, or just roll her eyes, Dorothy asks straight up, and what's for dessert? STI medication? 
Of course, Dorothy could never step into Blanche's shoes and approach a man with such gusto, so she'll do it how she feels comfortable, which isn't the most promising option. Hence, Sophia suggesting Dorothy asks him whilst somehow sporting the body of one Miss Jane Fonda. Otherwise, they won't be having a guest over for dinner. The girls have done what they can to help their friend, and they send her off into the world to give the asking out a try. It's now the following Saturday, and we're at Dorothy's school, where she and Frank are still working on what, honestly, looks like should have been done in, like, the afternoon before the event, like just a couple of hours of setting up, not over multiple weekends, but I digress. And a shout-out to Charles Erickson, who plays Tony, the mulleted, tight-pants-wearing, sign-hanging assistant. This is his only listed credit, but he gives it his all. Cheers to Tony! In her most outstanding, multicolored, sort of windbreaker sweater and cream pants, Dorothy is working hard at finding an excuse to talk to Frank, who is wearing a blue and yellow plaid shirt and khakis. Trying to help Frank with the sign he's hanging, Dorothy sees her in for communicating, but in doing so, she nearly startles him off the ladder he's standing on. To make up for it, she offers him some coffee. Making their way to the coffee area, Dorothy points out how the students refer to Frank as Frank and not Mr. Last Name, you know, all formal like a teacher. It's not that Dorothy disagrees with it, she actually likes it. And Frank feels the same. He doesn't want the formality of a name to push a kid away from him that might need to talk to someone, all of which Dorothy appreciates and uses as her end to start talking about dinner. Complimenting Frank's love of teaching and dedication to the craft, the pair make their way to a pile of mats where they sit to enjoy their coffee. Then Frank gives Dorothy the perfect opening. He's even gone to students' homes for dinner, after they lay out the newspapers on the floor for him, of course. With that topic brought up, Dorothy sees her chance to invite him over. So the date is set. He'll be coming to the house for dinner to meet her roommates. It's so nice that she can say, my roommates would love to meet you, meaning she's talked about him at home, but it isn't like a, oh God, I've said too much, or that he's freaking out. They're just adults, and it's nice to see them just talk. None of those dating games. It's bingo night for Sophia, which means it's date night for Dorothy. As she gets ready in her room, Blanche and Rose are helping to set the mood by getting the house ready. Rose in her teal wrap dress and Blanche in her silver pant and jacket combo and navy shirt, a la the manager of a solid gold dancer, are coming in from the lanai. But Rose is, unsurprisingly, confused. They moved the seating and the table around, and she just can't understand why. It's simple, Blanche explains. The lighting was horrible the way it was set up, so to give Dorothy her best light, they move things around. She doesn't want her looking like Eric Severied for crying out loud, who was a CBS journalist and author. He was actually the first to report German forces taking over Paris in 1940. Through his career, he would report on other major occurrences, like the assassination of JFK with Walter Cronkite, and he wrote a handful of books. There wasn't much notable about Eric's complexion. He was just kind of your average white guy with some red and yellow highlights. I don't think it's personal so much as, well, what woman would want to look like a male war journalist? Two things I've seen in Europe will last in my memory forever. One was the death of Paris. Paris died like a beautiful woman in coma, without struggle, without knowing or even asking why. That haze of smoke creeping like a shroud over the body, while her lifeblood drained quietly and rapidly away through all her arteries. 
The other thing is this Battle of London. London is called the heart of an empire and a civilization. To me, it's more like the massive old head and face, grayed and blackened with age. Every morning, you feel the urge to climb to some high place and try to see where the face has been gashed and chipped in the night. One left Paris with a feeling almost of relief. London, one leaves with regret. Someone here wrote the other day, when this is all over, in the years to come, men will speak of this war and say, I was a soldier, I was a sailor, or I was a pilot. Others will say with equal pride, I was a citizen of London. I return you now to CBS in New York. Just in time, Sophia is headed out the door for her game, lucky handkerchief in tow. It turns out she had it in her bra. No, not to blow her breasts, but to amplify her bosom so the butcher would give her a better cut of, you guessed it, veal. So out the door Sophia goes, headed to the Catholic Church to get her bingo on. After Sophia is gone, Blanche comes back from the kitchen with another seating idea. She's going to set the table up in a way that it would work should anyone want to play footsie. Well, Rose just loves that idea. Charlie didn't play it with her, and she hasn't done it in years. That's great and all, but Blanche meant for Frank and Dorothy. Coming out in a five-foot-long little girl's tube sock is Dorothy. Her off-white skirt, long sweater with the same color on the shoulders, and a baby pink torso is just... uh, It's not something to be worn on a date. But not something to be worn by anyone, really. Ever. Even if she tried to wear it to a gay funeral in New Orleans, they would probably say it was just too depressing. Continuing with her dating advice, Blanche begs Dorothy to not only go change, but to put on something dazzling and daring. Show off your curves. Show some sort of style. Be a woman. With that, Dorothy agrees, responding that she'll try with her trademark growl face and claw hand. With Dorothy off to change, Rose and Blanche get to work in the kitchen. Rose isn't worried about the food. She's worried about Blanche being too pushy for Dorothy. Blanche doesn't see it that way. She's just trying to help a friend who's getting older and doesn't have Blanche's looks or Rose's. Even if Blanche is being too tough, she doesn't see a problem with it. She's simply helping Dorothy, who is clearly smitten with her co-worker and just needs a little help getting Cupid's arrow into the provocative tushy of love. From the Old English and Germanic versions of smite, meaning to smear or throw and be struck, in the mid-1600s, the struck aspect started to involve emotions. So to be smitten, you are struck with feelings, usually of the romantic kind. Tush has quite the train of words connected to it, becoming a slang term for the butt. Starting with the Hebrew word tahat, meaning beneath, then there's Yiddish tukus or tukus. That was then shortened to tush, meaning bottom, the butt kind, not like the bottom of a bag of chips. Blanche just put some southern flair on it with tushy. With Rose worked up by Cupid's tushy, Blanche leaves her to deal with the food while she leaves to answer the ringing doorbell. And now... My second favorite scene in the series, once again brought to us by Blanche, and like my first place moment, an unexpected dinner guest. Opening the door, we find Frank, who is now dressed in clerical clothing, including the white collar and everything. Part of what makes this moment so great is that unlike a little romance, we have met Frank, so we're in the know as to what has happened. Blanche, on the other hand, is totally unaware, which is why she's confused it's a priest going door-to-door to to ask for money instead of the nuns. Willing to donate, Blanche leaves to get her purse, but not before Frank stops her. You don't need your purse. 
I'm Frank. Playing Father Frank Leahy is John McMartin, who had a nearly 60-year screen career with concurrent stage success. With 42 on- and off-Broadway credits and 81 screen credits, John won hearts and awards. Maybe he knows something about Shirley MacLaine's multiple lives as he co-starred with her in Sweet Charity. His film and television career started in the 1950s on As the World Turns and ended in 2015 with Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. In between, he was on Hawaii Five-0, The Partridge Family, The Bob Newhart Show, Phyllis, All the President's Men, Blowout, Falcon Crest, Who's That Girl with Madonna, Cheers, Murder, She Wrote, Empty Nest, Coach, Frasier, Oz, and Law and & Order. Wow. I know. What a what a career. It's and the, the and only, in all of them, he's got that funky little mouth. He's adorable, and he's got a great voice. He talks like down Love here. his voice. I'm Frank. Love that weird little mouth. Terrific. He's wow. cool in Blowout. Blowout's a cool movie. His look, you could very easily, he passes as a priest, and you could believe him as a villain. Yeah. You know? I think that's maybe part of Absolutely. his, like, uh, built-in versatility. Yeah, he looks like an unassuming hitman. Yeah. Or your neighbor, Frank, who turns out to be a priest. <laughs> Dreams you didn't dare are dead. Were they ever there? Who said, I don't remember, I don't remember at all. When the news gets from Frank's lips to Blanche's ears, you can see her whole face, even hairline, shift. Shocked to see the hunk is a priest, Blanche asks for forgiveness, but not in his official capacity. A priest forgiving or providing absolution means they are, depending on the branch of Christianity you are part of, providing a sacrament or prayer, resetting your sin clock. As far as Southern Baptists go, shout out to my Grammy, they do have a type of confession and forgiveness, but not a formal absolution process. From CatholicExchange.com, with a Catholic confession, there is a detailed account of the sinning and a full prayer and forgiveness process. It's very Catholic. With Baptists, it's more of a, I sinned, and the priest is like, eh, you've had the blood of Christ, you're good. Twaddling on, giving us full-on shrimp energy, Blanche corrects herself. Please just forgive me for calling you a hunk. Besides, I'm a Baptist, and those Baptists, both officially and casually, just cannot be forgiven. Wiping the sweat from her brow before using the Lord's name in vain, then apologizing, then lying about it, then using the Lord's name in vain again, then confessing to lying, Blanche is a mess. Welcoming him into the home, she basically flings her hand at him to close the door, no longer concerned with presenting the perfect date night. It doesn't take long for Frank to figure out that Dorothy didn't know he was a priest. Blanche can't understand how that would be possible, given that he has a pretty distinctive uniform— when it comes to his boring Steve Jobs-inspired wardrobe, it depends on the church, but priests are allowed to wear regular clothes. The robes, collars, and other religious wear are designated for specific services or events. Did all of your priests and nuns, like, did they wear the clerical, or were they in, like, casual Friday stuff? The priests at my grade school all wore the all black with the, uh, the collar thing, whatever that's called. Mm -hmm. And then my high school had Franciscan monks who were staff and also just worked there at the church. But they all wore, like, the brown robes, you know, St. Oh, Francis. Oh, yeah, with, like, like, the tie in the middle. Yeah, St. Francis. I've seen Sister Act. 
unaware priests could wear regular citizen clothing and making a joke about the two spectrums of sexuality the persons occupying the couch represent, Blanche is shocked to learn priests can take their clothes off. Sure, they can change their clothes and do other things regular people do, except for that one thing. Floppo knows what we're talking about. Here to make things even more awkward is Rose. Without hesitation or even acknowledgement of his clothing, she walks straight up to Frank and shakes his hand. As Blanche sits between watching the interaction, it doesn't take long for her to realize Rose is panicking as she twaddles on about how Dorothy cares about Frank. Kudos for the director here, whose comedic timing was spot on. As Rose talks and talks, her voice becoming more uncomfortable with each statement, Blanche tries to interrupt, but there's no stopping her. After a few Rose attempts, Blanche stands up. Mere inches from Rose's face, she's facing her while Rose is looking at Frank. And in that moment, the camera changes from a wide shot to a close-up of the two of them, panting, eyes wide and wandering, and with a horrified tone, Rose blurts it out. He's a priest, isn't he? Not knowing what else to say to connect to the priest, Rose has a seat and gives her condolences for Helltown's cancellation. What was Helltown? Well, get ready for some fun facts. The synopsis of Helltown is basically a man who grew up in a rough neighborhood, playing pool, breaking the law, probably even shooting some hoops, became a priest working in that same neighborhood. But he's not like the other priests. He's a cool priest. With a show that sounds that thrilling, you might be shocked to learn it only ran from September to December 1985 on the girls' station NBC. Frank probably didn't watch it, as priests are permitted to view television as long as they believe it's non-titillating. On top of all of that, there's, well, it's not an oh boy so much as a yikes. The star of Helltown? Robert Blake. That guy that was acquitted of the murder of his wife while at a restaurant in L.A. in 2005? Yikes! Even with all of that, I will say, it had one hell of a theme song. Heavenly Father... Let us go among them. Rose's line about Helltown and how funny it is really depends on whether or not you know what that means. It's it's like a funny line because you figure it's some sort of show. Mm-hmm. But unless you've seen Helltown, <laughs> know who's in it, see the premise, the trailer, all of it. I mean, it is it is bonkers. Yeah, it makes me think. Um, I mean, it's a really that is a time capsule joke because that show was on for two months. So I'm I can only guess that it was like probably really promoted through the summer as like a fall premiere and then it just totally bombed and so I'm sure like maybe had a cover of TV guide or something and then it was like by the way this has been canceled 
Helltown sent to TV Hell. Hey, it reminds me of um, Average Joe. <laughs> do you remember that from this year? I, I sure barely do. <laughs> it looked so bad. <laughs> Where it was like you, we were inundated with these commercials for this show, and everyone was like, "No, thank you. No one asked for that." Imagine three worlds <laughs> where a man can be a doctor, a teacher, uh, a cop, a cop and a rock star. Yeah. A white man. Now. He's just an average white guy doing average white guy jobs. I mean, can you even conceive of that? <laughs> it's just impossible. Somehow they pulled it off. Well, and everyone hated it. <laughs> they pulled it off and then pulled the plug. But yeah, hell, yeah, you can, you do kind of get like, oh, Helltown, so it must be religious related, so that's funny, whatever. But it is much funnier once you hear the song, watch any of the action, and know the plot of it. Just then, Dorothy returns, now dressed for a date, but not for a dinner with a priest. In black pants and an iridescent sequined blouse, she definitely took Blanche's advice and found something flashy. Laying eyes on her date, more importantly, his clothing, she has but one question. Is that a Nehru jacket? Like that which was worn by mid-century Indian Prime Minister Jawari Nehru? They broke into mainstream U.S. fashion thanks to the Beatles, as they were commonly worn by villains in James Bond films. Dr. Evil in Austin Powers also sported one. Hopefully that helps you picture the high-collared, hip-length jacket. Lest we forget... Sensei Steven Seagal. Oh my God, of course. The beefy king of the Nehru jacket. He loves a Nehru jacket. Well, it makes sense. It covers a lot of Seagal. <laughs> and he does seem to love cultural appropriation. Leaving their friend to deal with her situation, the girls go to the kitchen while the couple talk about the miscommunication. Dorothy's pretty embarrassed about it all, especially her outfit. Even when Frank tries to compliment her, all she can say is, I look like the mother of a solid gold dancer. For eight years, starting in 1980, solid gold brought the hits of the day into homes every week. Presented by such illustrious hosts as Dionne Warwick, Andy Gibb, Nina Blackwood, Rick Dees, and Arsenio Hall. Sure, there were other shows like Soul Train that played pop hits, but what made Solid Gold so groovy was that instead of having peasants dance in a line showing off their moves, Solid Gold had professional dancers that put together choreographed dances to go along with the songs. No word on whether their mothers dressed in the same flashy, glamorous, Mostly ridiculous outfits. Yeah! Welcome to another start of another solid gold year. The best music our industry has to offer. This year promises to be the very best one yet. And during the next 12 months, Solid Gold will be bringing you the brightest stars, the hottest sounds, and of course, the greatest dancers you've ever seen. So stay with us. We'll be right back with great music. With food ready, the gang heads out to the lanai, but Rose is confused. Between the footsie plans and the priest, she just isn't sure where to sit. Blanche has no patience for her dumb question, so she scream barks at her, who the hell cares, what the hell does it matter now, just sit wherever you damn well please. I love that for a show that doesn't really ever have language, with the exception of a few bitches or ass now and again, unless of course you're watching on Hallmark, they really pulled out the stops when the priest was on. Back in the house, enjoying some after-dinner coffee, Frank is sharing the career paths which led him to the priesthood. 
Hearing all the jobs he's held, Rose can't help but wonder what his plan is for after the priesthood. Apparently not knowing it isn't just a lifetime commitment, but an eternal one. Fed up with the heartbreak, embarrassment, and stupidity of the evening, Dorothy leaves to get more coffee with Blanche joining her. Left alone with Frank, always complimentary, Rose finds black to be a good color for him and is curious if the fashion played a part in his decision-making. CatholicTimes.org tells us that in the early era of clerics, dull-colored clothes were adopted to separate them from the everyday folk. By the 700s, priests in France were wearing long black robes, which caught on as the fashion for church leaders. The black remains as it is symbolic of mourning. Mourning what? Well, mourning their own death from the day they dedicated themselves to the church. Fun. In the kitchen, Blanche doesn't really apologize for having forced the evening upon everyone, but compliments on how nice it's been. Even with everything going on, Dorothy can't help but to have enjoyed herself as well. Pointing out the look in Frank's eyes, Blanche can't help but to keep pushing. This time, it isn't for Dorothy to ask him on a date, but to realize he feels feelings for her, and not just of the friend variety. He has lust for her. She knows this because he's not just a priest, he's a man. Blanche isn't just saying this to say it, she's been in the same position. Meeting a man of the cloth, a nickname for priests, she knew they couldn't be together. But they knew they couldn't be without each other. They tried to fight their feelings, her graphic description giving Dorothy a scrunch face, until they finally gave up and checked into a hotel. Shocked, Dorothy cannot believe Blanche had an affair with a priest. Priest? I said a man of the cloth. He was a fabric salesman. Nothing came from the affair except Blanche getting her lazy boy covered for free. While that story wasn't exactly relevant to the evening, Blanche feels the look in Frank's eyes is comparable to that of her fabric man. Arguing until they are falling out of the kitchen, Dorothy and Blanche realize they're not only loud, but they're back in the living room with their guest. Still hoping to preserve a shred of dignity, Dorothy, carrying the coffee tray full of mugs and still dressed like a third-tier dancer in a Disneyland parade, makes her way to the coffee table, a slight gallop putting the fringe on her sparkly shirt to work. Coming in the front door, everyone is surprised to see Sophia home so soon. Well, her game ended early because everyone kept winning after only a few numbers were called. Certain the game was fixed, she threatened to call Hugh Downs of 2020 to have him investigate. Since the threat was towards a priest, she's not surprised to see one sitting in the living room, surely there to make her stay quiet. But he's not a bingo mafia priest, he's Frank. But all Sophia is worried about is how Dorothy's date went. That's when Rose informs her that Father Leahy is her date. Pulling her Catholic daughter aside with a, come here, Sophia explains that it's bad luck to date a priest and that this is all connected to the bingo conspiracy. Realizing how late it's getting, Frank makes his way to the door, saying his goodbyes. But before he leaves, he tells Dorothy he'd like to see her before their usual Saturday project date. Because of her, he's decided to leave the church and he'd like to discuss it with her. Later that evening, we find Dorothy in the kitchen with Blanche joining her. They're both in actual pajamas and new robes. Dorothy's bright blue and pink, Blanche, the dull pastel version of Dorothy's. Dorothy's up not just because she couldn't sleep, but she also had a nightmare. Happy to help her with trying to interpret, Blanche asks her to share. Picture it. She was a contestant on the dating game, and she won. Meeting the eligible bachelor, it turned out to be the Pope. On the 1970s dating game, a contestant would ask questions of three eligible dates, then choose one winner. They would then meet for the first time after the partition was removed. 
Clearly, Dorothy has some Catholic guilt going on on many levels. According to dreamsmean.net, dreaming of being on a game show can represent your need to feel acknowledged, to take chances, or to do something to take control and change the luck of your future. Before she can go any further into detail, and Blanche, who it turns out is actually terrible at interpreting dreams, can give her answers, Rose comes in from the back-slash-mudroom-slash-garage door. In her arms, she has a box of groceries. She knew they'd be up all night talking, so she got cheesecake and ice cream. Oh, oops, I actually lied about Dorothy's jammies. She's wearing her white vampire ones, and her robe actually has a stiff collar, which is, as the cool kids say, popped. Settling in for a night of talking things through, Dorothy just can't believe the odds. Here she's found an amazing man, but he's already in a more serious relationship. With God. Not Pam Dauber, the actress most known for her roles as Mindy in Mork and Mindy and on My Sister Sam. Even if he could, Frank can't be in a relationship with her. She's been married to Sexiest Man Alive alum Mark Harmon since 1987. For Blanche, the whole thing is romantic. Just like the Duke of Windsor, Dorothy has a man who is willing to give up everything just to be with her. Queen Elizabeth's uncle, King Edward VIII, didn't reign for long when he took the title of King of the United Kingdom in 1936. Much like current royals, Edward took issue with proceedings and the formality of the position. This worried those that were concerned about his ability to lead. Then he announced he wanted to marry a woman. An American woman. A twice-divorced woman. Well, that just wouldn't do. So he abdicated his position, giving up his title of king, becoming Duke of Windsor. He and his wife, Wallace Simpson, were wed and remained together until his death in 1972. For Rose, it reminds her of Charlie. When they first got together, Rose didn't think her future in-laws cared for her. So, in doing some digging, she found out about an ancient feud between Charlie's family, the Nylans, and the Gerkleckner-Bikens, which is what her family's family went by after shortening the name to give it more show-business pizzazz. What marquee could even hold Gerkleckner-Bikens Hofstetler-Brow? Once the couple was engaged, the Nylans said they would disown him and he would have no share in the family grout business. But he didn't care. He was in love. Saving us from hearing more of the gerkleckner Bygans, Sophia arrives, just in time to give Dorothy crap for not fearing God. Here, she spent her life following every rule, eating fish on Fridays, lighting every candle, and for what? To have her daughter find a date with a horny priest? Jesus died, presumably on a Friday. Eventually, Catholics were asked to fast on Fridays in honor of his sacrifice. But the people got too hangry and were like, what do we do about this? so it was decided cold-blooded fish didn't count as food, and fish on Friday became the norm. Eventually, that rule was relaxed, but some Catholics still abide. Unlike the Nylans, Sophia isn't here to forbid any choices or behaviors. She supports her daughter no matter what. But if she does go through with dating him, she'll have to rot in hell for eternity. With that and a kiss on the forehead, Sophia is off to bed. Making our way into a Catholic church, we find Sophia in a stunning blue Chanel-style suit and hat who is headed to confession, but not with her own sins. For crying out loud, she was there just a few days ago, and she's in her 80s. She wishes she could have an impure thought. But it's not about that. She's there for business, the business of Frank and Dorothy. 
As Sophia starts to lay out her feelings about the relationship, we cut to the priest, and it ain't Frank. In the confessional is the confessional priest, played by Charles Summers, who got his acting start on Matlock before being on The Girls. After that, he was on Facts of Life for a couple of episodes, the pilot of Mama's Boy, Hotel, and Dynasty. Of course, between Matlock and The Girls, he was on La La. As Sophia goes into more detail, including the fact that Dorothy has been divorced, the priest listens on in shock, confusion, and horror. Meanwhile, outside of the booths and in the church, we find Frank speaking with another priest about what his actual plan is. Once again, the audience gets to know all of the secrets, leaving the girls in the dark. He isn't leaving the church because he's in love with Dorothy. He wants to serve his community as an educator in a teaching priest position. The priest speaking with Frank, Father Callahan, is played by Barney McGeary. This was his first of only six total roles outside his commercial work. He was then in Matlock, CBS Summer Playhouse, Hot to Trot, and the made-for-TV films Fatal Judgment and Kiss of a Killer. Side note, someone saying that their Barney's grandson was on Reddit and asked about getting a picture on his IMDb profile. So if anyone has an in and could help him out, you can gmail us or you can contact g-wz on Reddit. Priests struggling with the priesthood is nothing new. Paul Midden, writing for Vox, shared his experiences as a psychologist working with priests, most of which were struggling with their emotions, specifically falling in love while in the priesthood. Because of the Catholic moral expectation, priests can't marry or have sexual contact with, well, anybody. This seems odd, to say the least, to most people. But there are some reasons behind it. For one, in Catholic-heavy neighborhoods, priests may be held in a higher regard, sort of a local superhero. This can make the job appealing. Escape might be another reason. Perhaps the priest is experiencing sexual identity issues, such as being in love, being gay, being a victim of sexual harassment or assault. Running to a place where that world basically doesn't exist can seem like a good choice. Sneaking into the church because she had some free time, so she drove across town, is Dorothy in her khakis, red top, and purple hip-length cover thing. Frank is surprised to see her, but she couldn't wait until their planned conversation. She needed to talk to him now. Sitting in the pews, Dorothy opens up. Blanche knew you were thinking about this, but I can't be responsible for this choice. But she's appreciated everything, feeling attractive at her age, feeling a spark with a man, but she can't let him leave the church for her. This vulnerable moment is met with a what? and laughter. Confused once again, the miscommunication this time was that Frank wanted to leave the actual church he was working at. He wants to be a teacher thanks to Dorothy's support of his good work with his students. While this is a relief to Dorothy, she's also embarrassed. Not only had she already imagined that he liked her and wanted to date her, she went so far as to imagine that he was so in love with her he was going to leave the church. But Frank begs to differ. Hey, we respect and appreciate one another, which is its own kind of relationship. Finally understanding where the relationship actually lies, the two agree to still have dinner with each other, and to make it even more clear they aren't together, they'll go Dutch. What a treat! The priest is giving us an oh boy by asking if she'd like to go Dutch treat, or as most people say, go Dutch. Splitting the bill between people, even on a date, is referred to as going Dutch, but this is actually a slur against the Dutch that goes back 300 years to the Anglo-Dutch War. 
From Quartz.com, the English and Dutch had an on-again, off-again war relationship through the 16 and 1700s. Despite their enemy, the English came up with all sorts of Dutch bashing phrases, mocking a perception or stereotype that the Dutch were cheap. With everything cleared up and plans made, the two hug, just in time for Sophia to catch them, appalled that he wasn't listening to her warnings and concerns. And with that, we see the pair off, wishing them nothing but the best. Miscommunication is, at the very least, frustrating. When it continues to happen with the same person, it can be maddening. When you find yourself either always feeling misunderstood or finding you hit a wall with the same person over and over, you should follow Dorothy's lead. Talk to the person, share your side of things, and listen carefully so everyone has a solid understanding as to what is going on and you know where you stand moving forward. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we talk sisters and stolen boyfriends in Long Day's Journey into Marinara. Your golden goodie for today comes from Fab Lab LLC, an Etsy shop full of resin ashtrays with fantastic colors, glitter, and pictures. For example, you can visit Etsy.com and go to Fab Lab LLC and get the Betty White stash jar, giving a gesture she should have used to that rude driver. Besides the already golden goodies, you can custom order an ashtray for only $20. So on Instagram or Etsy, find Fab Lab LLC and get yourself some golden goodies. When Sophia repeats her with, Lunky, Lunky Handkerchief. I mean, I don't know who could say no to Blanche if she was up in your face like that. You just go, okay. Yes, mommy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you want me to find a compilation of famous Tonys making noise? Yeah. Tony Soprano. Yeah. Tony from uh, Who's the Boss? Yeah. Tony Matola. Mm. Tony, isn't Scarface a Tony? Tony Montana. There you go. What other Tonys do we have? Tony, Tony, Tony. <laughs> Tony? is it true I would think so because you're not a liar and you tend to know stuff but maybe it was just a dream I had (laughs) (laughs) there were these balloons full of bombs did you see them (laughs) did you see them coming they landed on our houses the balloon bombs kaboom (laughs) kaboom balloon I would say it's more debunk and rebunk yeah Rebunk McIntyre. <laughs> How dare you? You want to play footsie, Coco? So badly. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not really, I'm not into feet, and I don't like the, like the idea of, I don't really care for the idea of two feet rubbing together. Two different, like, a, like from two different sets. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just honest is all I do here. <laughs> <laughs> just all I do is just say the thing that comes out of my That's head. That's right. That's all the people want. Well, I hope so. Have you ever had veal? No, never. Wouldn't. Don't like that idea at all. Opening the door, we find Frank, who is now dressed in his cler- clerical? Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have a lot of Catholic questions, so hold on. Which is why she's confused it's a priest going door to door. Door to door to door to door. Hi, to die, to die, to die. go door to door. Brown robe with a tie on it, uh, St. Francis of Assisi style.
Oh. So, which I really didn't like. I, I just found that very strange. More well. strange. Well, just just didn't I just didn't like it. I didn't like the the thought of 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 what if anything they were wearing under their clothes. <laughs> Honestly, I am not kidding you because I could see a lot of bare like up to the shin, oh. and shin up. You know, there's not much more body left to be naked under there. Once you've decided to go almost to the knee. <laughs> yeah, they're just. Are they wearing biker shorts or are they wearing? You know, I mean, nothing I, at all. I left. I was I left high school 24 years ago, and I still think about it. For some reason, I I remember the first time I ever heard of an iced coffee. It was one of my. It was my geometry teacher, saying that he drinks his coffee iced, and I was like mind blown and also <laughs> disgusted. And he was the one I was worried the most about being naked <laughs> under his thing. He kind of looked like Robin Williams, but balding, and he had very hairy legs. Mm-hmm. And I really did poorly at geometry. I almost failed high school. <laughs> because of that class? Couldn't I can't do it. Well what's a square? Yeah. I hated it. Chemistry can eat my ass. <laughs> Anyways, church. No one ever did, did anything to me and I got a good education. And it was very expensive for my parents and I didn't go on to college, which <laughs> seems kind of well, you know. <laughs> and now um, boy, here I am. Amen. Yeah, would that be harder, ha ha ha, no pun intended, to never know and just be in it and not have that, or to know and then be like... Well, then you can make an actual choice. Yeah, that's true. Because if you've never done it... That's true. You'll never know how swiggity sweet it can be. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh. I mean, they don't even know. They don't even know. They don't know. So... Um, don't become a priest or a nun. Bye. <laughs> what would you call them? Stoic? I don't know that I would ever, I don't know that I've ever put an adjective to a nipple except fluffy. Well, start living, man. <laughs> That's what I'm Teats, saying. Teats, I say. That's what I mean is it sounds weird to put an adjective to a nipple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put an adjective to your, to your nipples if you oh. don't start. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> and then, um, <clears throat> and then in high school, I was also like, <laughs> my mom's. My... She's been married to Sexiest Man Alive alum Mark Harmon since 1987. Summer school. <laughs> What's that? Mark Harmon was in summer school. Oh, fun! Were they in it together? Who? <laughs> I was asleep, but I heard summer school. Pam Dauber. No, you said summer school. Didn't you say summer school? No, you just said summer school. Mark Harmon started in summer school with Kirstie Alley. It's a real charming movie. I was asleep. I'm really excited. I'm a part of this show. I'm excited for you to hear that. I'm not. <laughs> you get a free cracker on Sunday. And a little ship of wine. Not this guy. They used to they used to do that when I was a kid where they would just all drink out of the same oh, the chalice. And even as a child, I was appalled by that. I am never doing that. I will never do that. <laughs> and I never did it. I mean, no wonder we have COVID. It was it, waiting to happen. It's disgusting. 300 people oh. who live in the same neighborhood are going to share a cup. <laughs> Guys. What? 
Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sisters.